0: to listen to is a podcast produced by Philoclea Ministries. Philoclea Ministries is offered to all free of charge. However, there are real and immediate needs associated with it. If you are a regular listener or enjoy any of the content produced by Philoclea Ministries, we humbly ask that you consider becoming a contributor. You can learn more about our funding needs at www.philocleaministries.org. Please note that Philokalia Ministries is not a 401c3 nonprofit organization and that contributions are not tax deductible. Supporting Philokalia Ministries is just like supporting your other favorite podcasters and content creators, and all proceeds pay the production bills, make it possible for us to pay our content manager, and provide a living stipend for Father David. God bless you, and enjoy the podcast.
1: Jesus Christ, glory forever. Welcome back, everybody, to our study of the Ladder of Divine Ascent uh, by St. John Climacus. And we're picking up this evening with step number 14 on gluttony, or as this translation has it, on that clamorous mistress, the stomach. And we are picking up tonight with paragraph number nine on page 135. If you're following along in the text, paragraph 9, Often vanity proves an enemy of gluttony, and between themselves they quarrel over the wretched monk as for a purchased slave. The one urges him to relax, while the other proposes that he should make his virtue triumph. The wise monk will shun both, at the right time shaking off each passion by the other. So vanity, you know, a person will sort of glory in his self-discipline. And, uh, and so these two passions can sort of war against each other, John says, uh, and, and almost work in the favor of the monk if he sees what's going on and can avoid both of them. Uh, but nonetheless, uh, the, the battle is a difficult one, uh, whether we're drawn into vanity or in the gluttony. Uh, as he says, we should shun both. But uh, as we will see in the coming paragraphs, it's not An easy thing to do, since this is an appetite so tied uh, to our body and uh, and so it's very difficult to to rein in the desires that are, are associated with it. Paragraph number 10 as long as the flesh is in full health, let us observe abstinence at all times and in every place when it has been tamed, which I do not suppose is possible this side of the grave, then let us hide our accomplishment. So maintain abstinence and fasting uh, continuously, basically he's telling the monks, uh, because this isn't something that we are not going to be tempted by uh, throughout our, until the very end of our life. And uh, I think for those living in the world, again, We've talked many times about establishing fasting and abstinence as a regular part of one's spiritual discipline and how far we've removed ourselves from that. And I think what we will hear from John throughout the remainder of this step will be very convincing in that regard, how important it is to order the appetites associated with the body, not only Uh, in terms of uh, our appetite for food but also our sexual appetites we'll see Uh, so tied to the other virtues and the foundation for the other virtues that we want to have it as a constant practice and be constantly vigilant. I have seen aged priests mocked by the demons and on the feast they gave their blessing to young men not under their direction to use wine and all the rest. If those who give permission have a good witness in the Lord that is our spiritual, then let us also permit ourselves within limits. But if they are negligent, let us not give a thought to their blessing, especially when we are in the actual heat of the struggle with our flesh. So John gives a little warning here that uh, if a person is not particularly disciplined, He might want to give uh, a blessing for those to lighten the fast for themselves, uh, to free them from the obligation, to take it upon himself to do that. uh, But John is very cautious about this, that we should not relinquish the discipline easily uh, because of its importance. And especially if it's not our own spiritual elder, uh, giving that blessing, and in particular, if it's somebody who has not shown great discipline uh, in this regard. And so if, if they are encouraging us to let go of our fast or delight in it, we should give their words no regard. And, uh, and I understand this. I mean, and c- certainly, uh, I think often there will be individuals who want to encourage that so that there's a greater freedom, I think, on their part to lighten the fast or the discipline or uh, of it, and also abstinence from certain kinds of food. And so we have to be faithful to our own conscience in that regard, the pr- prayer role or the the uh, role of fasting that we've embraced uh, under the counsel of our, our confessor or elder, and be as faithful to that as, as possible. Any comments so far? It's interesting that he talks about seeing aged monks being mocked, that, again, in, he often makes this point that white hair and white beards doesn't necessarily mean wisdom or experiential knowledge or fidelity uh, to the role. And, uh, and so one has to be cautious in that regard. And uh, this is where John believes that one has to begin well in the spiritual life. And engage in this battle fully and you know, with great vigor. Uh, it's the first among ca- gluttony is the first among the capital sins for a particular reason, and again because it's tied to a bodily appetite, and uh, it can plague us throughout our whole life if we give ourselves over to it. Uh, but if we are weak in regards to our will. Uh, with something like controlling this appetite, then being able to order our other desires and order them toward God can be much more difficult. And uh, also, we'll see in you know the list of the eight vices or capital sins that gluttony and lust are closely tied together. That uh, if one is given over to eating in abundance or rich food, then one is going to be more vulnerable. Uh, to one's uh, uh sexual appetites and to sensuality and uh, be more vulnerable in that regard and so the remedy for uh lustfulness in particular is uh is is fasting as well as is humility and obedience to one's superior but fasting in particular uh, is very important again using Uh, the strengthening of our will in regards to one bodily appetite can strengthen us in regards to another. Okay. Number 12, Evagrius, afflicted by an evil spirit, imagined himself to be the wisest of the wise, both in thought and expression. But he was deceived, poor man, and proved to be the most foolish of fools in this, among many other things. For he says, when our soul desires different foods, then confine it to bread and water. To pre- prescribe this is like saying to a child, go up the whole ladder in one stride. And so rejecting this role, let us say, when our soul desires different foods, it is demanding what is proper to its nature. Therefore, let us also use cunning against our most wily foe. And unless a very severe conflict is on us or penance for falls, let us for a while only deny ourselves fattening foods, then heating foods, and only then what makes our food pleasant. If possible, give your stomach satisfying and digestible food so as to satisfy its insatiable hunger by sufficiency, and so that we may be delivered from excessive desire as from a scourge by quick assimilation. If we look into the matter, we shall find that most of the foods which inflate the stomach also excite the body. So, very good counsel. You know, he's talking about Evagrius here, who's actually very revered uh, for his writings on the ascetic life, and uh, and yet. Uh, there are some problems certainly in his personal actions, but also in some of his writings that were acknowledged early on. And John mentions one here that the extreme nature that is reflective, you know, partly of Evagrius's extreme practices that uh, telling people that they should fast on bread and water. And again, if you remember back to our talk on fasting, how balanced Albert de Vogue was in his discussion of the practice, allowing the body to adjust uh, to the different caloric intake as well as the different kinds of food. Uh, and so Climacus is saying the same thing here, that when one begins fasting, that one is attentive to the, the natural needs here that we, we have a certain uh, need for a certain amount of food to sustain us and sustain that appetite to satisfy that appetite. And so uh, we want to be cunning, he says, and so begin by giving up things that uh, are fattening, are rich, heavy, that are going to weigh down the body and make us sluggish, especially when it comes to prayer. And then he says, after that, one can begin, Uh, to not heat one's food so as not to, uh, you know, make it overly pleasurable. And then only uh, uh, after that, uh, uh, I'm sorry, after that, then what is sufficient to us and uh, what makes food basically pleasant for us. Um, And he says in this way, uh, if we are eating things that aren't heavy and aren't rich, that are healthy, that they are easily digested. Uh, And he uses the word assimilation here, but uh, it's an important thought that, you know, as our body is digesting things, especially that are difficult to digest, heavier foods, rich foods, we can be sluggish for a longer period of time. And so a diet that is light, uh, then allows our body to process it, to digest it more quickly. And so we're able to step back into our, prayer with a kind of alertness and we've talked about this before and I think it's we all have experience of this where we eat a heavy meal and then become very sleepy and uh, and the richer the food the more often that that happens and so uh, typically the monks would move away from meat uh, and have a vegetarian diet and eat things that would be, again, easily digested and also healthy and, uh, but also satisfy uh, some of the basic needs that the body has. And so as one is growing in this ascetic discipline, that one is aware of our need of their needs and can see this, this practice begin to grow and develop over the course of time. As with all ascetic disciplines, you know, we want to think about things not in, in the course of uh, in, in regards to days or, or months, but years. In terms of seeing the full fruit of them, that we would want to, to focus on perfecting our ascetic practices in the sense of doing them with love and uh, allowing them to direct us more fully toward God and to deepen our prayer life. And uh, so over over the course of each year, and say each Lent, for example, we would want to enter into and deepen our asceticism uh, with the passing of each year, that is deepen the perfection with which we enter into it. And the Eastern Rites in particular have, you know, pretty clear guidelines uh, that are are challenging that really do stretch uh, an individual in that regard. And then if you were to add periods of fasting where you take no food uh, then the once prayer can deepen significantly over time any comments on this paragraph or uh, any of the previous ones i see a couple here Uh, hold on for one second anthony months ago we talked about the monk who cut off his genitals to great spiritual and physical harm Fasting is a healthy way of cutting off an appetite. It cannot be complete since that is absolutely repulsive to natural law. It encourages both cutting something off and moderation and approach. Maybe that is the reason why fasting is a help for both gluttony and lust, right? In addition, fasting is accessible to both men and women, a remedy for all. Absolutely. And that comes up. Uh, here within this step, you know, the the lens at times that monks would go uh, when they lost this measured sense of things or lost what you describe here, that we understand natural law and we uh, don't want to mutilate ourselves. And it's said that uh, Origin did that and a number of others, uh, but... Uh, This is certainly not in accord with the Christian vision of things. When Christ says, if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out, he's not talking about self-mutilation, but he's talking about cutting out certain things that uh, lead us into sin or make it more difficult to engage in the spiritual life. And so cutting off, you know, certain foods for us, uh, as Climacus describes, would be a way that we would respond to that, that we would let go of rich and heavy foods uh, because of our desire to to be alert and to be able to pray uh, anytime during the day. And so there would be a kind of moderation, but also care to what we give ourselves on a day-to-day basis. Uh, There are a couple other comments here. Sue and Mark, am I correct in thinking that this can be modified for special health needs affected by diet yes in one of the previous paragraphs in in fact he says you know while one's health is uh good that one should maintain this practice but and so i think uh, at least uh, implicitly john is saying that to us that if there are health needs then that one would have to adjust this uh i think one could probably be pretty rigorous in regards to abstinence uh, from certain foods, uh, even if they couldn't fast vigorously, uh, that they would be able to sustain themselves and well and live a healthy life uh, by eating healthy foods and foods, again, that are easily digestible. Uh, Sean writes, I recently watched a good lecture on Evagrius, Evagrius the Monk and Care of Souls by Dr. Robin Darling-Young at the Byzantine Catholic Seminary. I didn't know that he was condemned along with Origen. I've only heard good things. Thank you, Father. Uh, Yet, you know, and I think it's, you know, Evacrius, his writings had an influence on so many individuals in the spiritual tradition. And so if we look at Cassian or Climacus, you know, we can trace elements all back to Evagris, that much of what they say is a development of his thought. And so even though one might recognize that there are problems with an individual's thought or their particular practice, it doesn't mean that we reject all that they wrote or think that they never you know, saw the truth about certain things, you know, that we don't have the corner on the market, as it were, on perceiving the truth. And sometimes we can fall into that little trap, you know, that we don't, we aren't, uh, or we don't have this generosity of spirit when listening to others and what they're saying to us and uh, truth that they might be speaking to us and that God might be speaking to us through them. If you were following along in the group on the Evergetinos, uh, you remember Ephraim making his little pilgrimage to Edessa, uh, expecting to, to encounter an elder who's going to speak a word of truth to him, set him on his way, revealed to him a virtue that is most necessary for him. And lo and behold, who does he encounter as he walks into the city? Uh, a prostitute. And if you remember, he tries to stare her down and to shame her uh, out of her way of life, and she glares back at him and basically sets him straight. You know, it's I should be looking at you because I've come from your side, from your rib. But why are you looking at me? Uh, you should keep your uh, head down to the ground uh, in order, you know, not to be, you know, gawking at me or lusting after me. And if you want to be a monk, go to the mountains, she tells him. And so from this unlikely source, this word of truth is spoken to Ephraim and that's how he receives it. That he went there uh, hoping to hear a word word of God, uh, a truth, and it came to him from an unlikely character. And uh, this is repeated in the and I think it's an important thing for us to see. That uh, we want to be uh, obedient to God. And as so we've often talked about, obedience has its root in ob adore, to listen, to hear. And so to be attentive and listening, uh, a humble soul uh, that is seeking the truth about oneself, but about God, and uh, so is going to be able to receive what is presented to him or her in such a way that there is this generosity of spirit, not suspicion uh, that closes the mind and the heart down. And it's always bothered me about that. And there are others like Tertullian. uh, uh, He's quoted multiple times in the catechism of the church, but not everything that he wrote or said has been embraced or accepted by the church. And, uh, and so we have to be cautious in that regard. Evagris was a great writer, a great aesthetic, but even great aesthetics fall into error. Okay. So let's pick up with uh, number 13. Laugh at the demon, who after supper suggests that you should take your meal later in the future. For the next day at the ninth hour, he will urge you to reject the pact which you made with yourself the previous day. So the demons are going to try uh, in the face of our ascetic practices and in particular fasting to draw us into pride. And so to extend that fast for a longer period of time, uh, that trying to convince us that there will be greater benefit that there will be a deepening of our prayer if we go longer than that twenty-four hour period, and uh, but John says, you know, the very next day, what you're probably going to experience is the demons mocking you uh, when you find out at the ninth hour you're starving to death, and you want to break that pact that you've made with yourself or with God uh, very easily, and all of a sudden you're starving to death at three o'clock in the afternoon and uh, have to have something. Daniel. Um,
2: I just had a quick question on that, and I'm going to throw out what maybe the answer is, just anticipating. Maybe the answer is that you don't rely upon your own discernment and the discernment of, of another, but like when John does this, it, it, I guess it kind of confuses me because he just had one paragraph where he talks about being, um, about being gradual essentially, mm-hmm. a gradually increasing in a sense and not just rushing all the way to bread and water, but gradually increasing your asceticism. And then the next one is like, when you have the thought of gradually increasing something, don't do it. So, you know, and, and then it conflicts with things where, I mean, I just, you know, where, we're like Isaac. I remember Isaac said something like, you know, well, if you can't fast for two straight days, then fast for one. And I was like, wow, that's a lot. And, well, and if you can't do that, then at least keep yourself from being overly full. And I just like where do you draw the line, I guess, between being too timid to do more mm-hmm. and also, though, not being um,
1: know, in a
2: sense, almost like having an excuse, using
1: timidity as an excuse to
2: not do more
1: right uh we've often talked about this that we don't engage in the spiritual life in isolation uh, as we often approach many things in our life that, that uh, again there's no such thing as an individual christian or private christianity that we're part of the body of christ and we're part of the church and we have Uh, a wisdom that's been distilled for us over the course of 2000 years and this rich, ascetical, mystical tradition that's rooted in real experience. And so it would be foolhardy for us to uh, take things up on our own without the guidance of someone who has an experiential knowledge of this fasting, who could guide us in that gradual uh, development and uh, help us adjust if things are, are too difficult. Uh, you're right, I think in our day and age that we do not stretch ourselves, both in regards uh, to prayer and then something like fasting, uh, in terms of lengthening the amount of time or fasting more than the minimum. And in that sense, we've, we've become minimalist in our spiritual practices pretty much across the board. And uh, and so I think we, we would want to seek out spiritual counsel, but be willing to push ourselves beyond what is comfortable. And again, to listen, you know, getting back to what we've been talking about in the Evercatina about uh, obedience, you know, to listen uh, on this very deep level to what God is drawing us to. And when we think of something like prayer, that we often think of it as a discipline, and a discipline that we we shape in accord with our sensibilities, our judgment uh, of what we think is sufficient. Whereas over the course of time, if we are being obedient to a spiritual director or confessor, and we are being obedient to God, if we're listening to him, uh, we might be drawn uh, much more deeply into prayer than what we initially imagined. As our understanding of the the beauty of it, the fruit of it begins to emerge and the necessity of it, and that it's not simply a discipline, but that we are to become prayer and uh, that this is like breathing for the Christian. And so if we are to listen to God God, and to what's revealed to us in the tradition, uh, that we would allow ourselves to be, as you said, stretch to be tested in that regard so that we can grow and again on a natural level and we've talked about asceticism not being uh, a religious reality essentially that it's a human reality that we see we use it and we see it in every other aspect of our life that we will discipline ourselves we will exercise ourselves in something that we love in order that we might perfect our particular skill. And we've talked about, you know, whether it's athletics or academics or one of the arts, Uh, but when it comes to religious asceticism, we often do not practice that and are unwilling to make the sacrifices uh, that we hear from the saints themselves and hear described for us beautifully in their writings. And as we've often talked about, you know, we live in this wonderful age where we have access to these writings too, so that we, in some ways we can sit at the, the feet of uh, John Climacus or, you know, all the writers in the Evercatino's or Cassian, who's very balanced and also a Western monk uh, formed in the Eastern tradition, uh, and sit at their feet over the course of years in order to be guided and directed by them, so that we don't. Uh, you know, lose sight of those pitfalls and find ourselves struggling. And uh, uh, in regards to fasting, this is where I think DeVogue's book, To Love Fasting, is great because he's immersed in the scriptures and in the tradition, but also he gives us the fruit of his own experience of fasting over the course of the years. And how that affected his prayer life, his health, everything. And uh, and so we have a lot to aid us in that regard. And so we do need to be stretched and be prepared for that. And if not, you know, we've talked about this before. We then we become religious dilettantes. You know mm-hmm. that we are reading the the fathers in order to tell ourselves, well, I, I read all of John Cassian, or I I read all the ascetic homilies of Isaac the Syrian. And on some level we have to say, well, big deal if if it does if it does not change how you live your life. And if it doesn't help you to give yourself over to Christ more fully. And uh And we've talked about that one modern elder saying that he would not turn a page until he internalized what was written by the saint that he was reading. And I think it might have been Isaac uh, that he was reading and uh, St. Paisius for 25 years, staying just with Isaac uh, in order that he might be formed, his understanding of the spiritual life might be formed by him. And again, there's always this desire to be shaped by that. Uh, I came across a little story from Pisces uh, recently and, you know, he was pretty cautious about his evaluation of his time on Athos. He had spent decades there and he says, you know, his neighbor had an ass and he said, you know, they're invaluable there and they're used for work and, you know, carrying things and and they're expensive so not everybody gets one. But his neighbor had one, and they—they're sort of—they have a longer life. They—they they stay around for quite a few years. And this his neighboring monk got the ass at the same time that he came to one of the monasteries on Mount Athos. And uh, and he said, when I left Mount Athos, I was no different than the ass. You know, I hadn't changed any more than the ass had. And uh, you know, on some level, he. It might have been an expression of humility but it might also be this acknowledgement that we can idealize even something like that going off to live at mount athos and live among the monks and but not really be entering into it fully if you've watched that little video the last anchorite about father lazarus he said you know, he's living uh, uh, as a hermit near St. Anthony's Monastery. And he said, you know, I could sleep all day. Nobody would know, you know. And so the role has to be interiorized and in order that I might live the life fully. And uh, it's a good point, you know, that we, we could live in an environment and simply going to that particular environment isn't going to magically change us. There has to be a matching desire for God uh, that, uh, that brings us there. And living there has to bear the fruit of conversion of heart and repentance, or again, that time, the time spent there is of little value. Uh, there's a comment here by David, aren't a lot of perceived contradictions looking at absolutes rather than stages and a process. There's a child using training wheels, then has someone behind him, then only a flat road over the period of time. And over the period of time in conquering basic steps, bigger challenges can be adopted. Right. And so it's this clear understanding of what it is to be a human being, what's natural for us. And uh, I talked to some of the monks at the Abbey of the Genesee in upstate New York, they're trappist and they maintain a vegetarian diet so they don't eat meat but when a young man comes and enters the monastic life they don't throw him in to that they make him eat continue to eat meat and only Mm -hmm. gradually begin to adjust his diet for all the same reasons that john is saying here that uh, if he tried to switch things rapidly he would likely become very ill and might have to even leave the monastery because of it and so they know that you know that practice they're not going to force him in the name of discipline or of of obedience that is not rooted in reality Uh, they're not going to force him into a practice that he's unable uh, to embrace and it's a good thing to keep in mind you know it's uh, uh, whether it's a parent guiding their children or priest guiding, you know, a a spiritual directee or uh, somebody in formation in the seminary, you know, that one allows for growth and development to take place and sort of pushing somebody in an unnatural way, you know, either, uh, you know, harms them or infantilizes them. You know, that you're giving them poor counsel that is deformative in some measure or by sort of pushing them uh, in an unnatural way or focusing in on little things about their personality that takes time to change. you You can really do more damage than good. Okay. Uh, let's see Anthony has another comment here so Mardi Gras can actually can actually harm the spiritual goal of Lent but meat fare then cheese fare is to enhance Lent yeah you know I think the way Mardi Gras is celebrated probably does harm one's entrance into Lent Uh, it's not really setting the tone for what is to come and, you know, I think even with meat fair and cheese fare, you know, there will be this like emptying out of one's home of those particular goods. And so one might have a meal that's very meaty uh, to get rid of all the meat in the house or, uh, you know, something that has a lot of cheese in it. And but it's preparing self preparing yourself to enter into the season of Lent gradually by taking these steps of letting go of the things that you're going to abstain from for the full Lent. Uh, and uh, and so there is a kind of a wisdom there of introducing people, preparing them. And that existed within the, the Latin rite as well. You know, this period of preparation of entering into Lent. And I think we've moved away from that. And uh, Mardi Gras' celebrations, you know, you know, as with so many celebrations don't necessarily have anything to do with Lent. You know, it can become an excuse to party. The same same thing with St. Patrick's Day. You know, I'm sure St. Patrick look, wouldn't look kindly on, you know, breaking your Lenten fast in order to get stinking drunk and, you know, eat corned beef and cabbage or whatever it is. You know, so uh, I think I, I found it beautiful. This is my first... Uh, a great fast in the Eastern Rite and this, and going through meat fare and cheese fare, and the abstinence of uh, seeing the fruit of that. Uh, that there is a value in and of itself of abstaining from certain foods that captures something of the wisdom here of John Climacus that pairs nicely then with what we read and talked about in the talk on fasting. Uh, from Devogue, that Devogue makes a wonderful point that uh, to eat is to break one's fast. And so to have, to move towards uh, a kind of fasting where you aren't eating for a period of time allows then for uh, your that hunger that one experiences on a bodily level to become associated with one's hunger for God, for he was the bread of life. And so to immerse oneself in that fully. And, uh, but the abstaining uh, helps as well, in accord with what John is talking about here, that certain foods really do make it difficult for us to enter into spiritual discipline. So, if we're entering into Lent, it makes sense for us to let go of those richer foods if our desire is to uh, reimmerse ourselves again in our spiritual disciplines, to take them up more fully, especially our prayer, and allow that to deepen. And it's true, you know, everything that John says, you know, when you're not eating meat, you know, and uh, you're you're running lighter, you know, uh, and uh, you can feel it and it is an adjustment and you have to like rice and beans and and vegetables and things like that. But uh, the hungry dog runs faster, I I guess, and uh, there's some truth to that. Uh, Patrick Caruso has a question here or comment. Oh wait, wait, there's one before you uh, from Jean Baptiste. There are many people these days practicing prolonged fasting up to seventy two hours. Should that be encouraged? Well, I think there there often is a kind of popularizing of spiritual practices that take place over the course of time, and uh, and with this practice, it's not even Uh, embracing it necessarily as a spiritual practice, but as uh, for one's personal health and as a way of losing weight. And so of intermittent fasting, which wouldn't typically be 72 hours, uh, but uh, I wouldn't say that would be encouraged. No, I think the, the wisdom that comes to us from our spiritual tradition is that We, If one is fasting for that long of a period of time, that there's always the danger of gluttony coming out of it because the hunger is so great, or that you could physically harm yourself and make yourself sick, uh, or that you could fall into pride just because of your capacity to fast for 72 hours straight. And so everything that comes to us from the spiritual tradition says, no, that this isn't the kind of fasting that typically... We would want to embrace if there was a, a fall that a person had, and one has a spiritual elder, and who's telling them to extend the fast for for a particular reason. Maybe you know we've we've read in the earlier steps of Climacus about the the prison and his step on penitence, where those who had broken their vows go and so uh embrace an you know a more harsh kind of asceticism uh, beyond the norm Uh, but it's because of a particular fall that they are seeking to find healing from and so they enter into the discipline even more deeply but under the watchful eye again of an elder uh, so that he can see if there's true progress being made or not Uh, And then Patrick Caruso writes, Father David, could you please speak to how one should incorporate fasting and or restraint on Sunday solemnities, et cetera, with the approaching Easter season? How is one to best continue forward with some of the fasting they may have been practicing during Lent in the Easter season? Well, you know, John sort of reveals to us in this step, and we'll come across it, uh, that there can be... Uh, something that is revealed by the way that we look forward to feast and festivals. And, uh, and so he says the, the spiritual warrior is going to want to hold on to the practice and to use, as it were, a period like Lent as a springboard uh, into deepening their spiritual life as a whole, not that they wouldn't uh, lighten the fast uh, on the feast days. But there are others who are looking ahead, you know, three or four weeks and planning their their menus out and buying the food in preparation for the meals. And so their attention is directed towards breaking the fast and how great it's going to be to incorporate those foods back into one's diet. And it reveals in a subtle way where one's heart is, one's mind and heart, what one desires and what one values. And the ascetic is going to acknowledge that yes, on feast days, uh, we would celebrate appropriately, and, uh, but we, we wouldn't give ourselves over to excess or gluttony. And that again, we would want to move back to uh, those disciplines as soon as we can in order to maintain the depth of that prayer life and uh, to maintain also our focus in our struggle with particular uh, appetites or passions. And so a person who's struggling, for example, with uh, lustfulness or, or with gluttony, you know, obviously is going to want to maintain a pretty rigorous fast and uh, and routine of fasting throughout the course of of their life and uh, depending on the nature of their constitution and the nature of that spiritual battle uh, that may go on you know until throughout their entire life and uh, again i think what we want to move away from is this episodic practice of essential spiritual disciplines uh, and then also move away from a minimalist uh, approach to spiritual disciplines. Uh, so while we em- embrace the wisdom of the fathers and avoiding extremes, we, we really want to, to see the value of asceticism as a whole and if we, if we understand what DeVogue wrote about, to love fasting, you know, he could say that because he saw the fruit of it in his life. And St. Benedict could write about joy and Lent because the experience of the deepening of the disciplines led to uh, a deepening intimacy with God. And so a person who's come to see that through experience is going to value those things and love them. And so not want to give, give them, give, you know, give off of them. And so like an athlete, you know, they, they get uncomfortable. You know, if you take a runner and if, the, if they aren't able to run for a couple of days, they're, they're miserable. You know, they, they have to have that as part of their life. And, uh, because it makes them feel a certain way. And especially, you know, if they're an athlete in training, you know, if they're on a really high level, they're going to give themselves times where maybe they lighten the the intensity of that discipline so their bodies can recover. But they're going to maintain training throughout the, you know, entire year. Unless you're like an offensive or defensive lineman, then you can just... (laughs) (laughs) eat whatever you want and come into the training camp, 400 pounds. And it doesn't seem to matter these days, but uh, you get the idea. So, okay. And then David wrote uh, in the early church, wasn't Wednesday and Friday all year, what Christians were known for in fasting, right? So there was a regularity in the practice of fasting within the life of the church. And uh, again, we've moved away from that, where I think the council is really calling us to do what we're doing here, which is to go to the scriptures and to go to the fathers and to say, why, why is it that we do this? And why is it important? And because when it breaks down and people are fasting, then they begin to wonder, what, what's the real value of this? Why am I doing it? And uh, gradually they drop off from practicing it anyways. Uh, And, you know, the loss of meaning of it can become extreme. We were talking the other night in the Evergatinos about the shocking nature of that scene from the Godfather where, you know, here he is, you know, he's the Godfather at like a nephew's baptism and they're flashing back and forth from the scene of him promising his Godfather, you know, you know, do you reject Satan? Yes. And then the scene flashes over to his hitmen wiping out uh, the, the members, the head members of the other families. And uh, and so how, how shocking that was when that movie came out at that time, because I think people still had that sensibility, you know, that those, those, those practices have meaning and those words have meaning. Now, Not so much, but the whole purpose of the council was to go back and to reflect on what does it mean to be a godfather or godmother, what does it mean to embrace these ascetic practices, Uh, but instead I think what we've seen is this move to a kind of minimalism. And so that's part of what we have to overcome. And again it doesn't have to be extreme, it can be very measured. Okay, uh, are we at 15? Is that correct? Paragraph 15, 14. One kind of abstinence is suitable for those who behave irreproachably and another for those subject to weaknesses. For the former, a movement in the body is a signal for restraint, but the latter are affected by such movements without relief or reconciliation till their very death and end. The former always wish to preserve peace of mind, the latter and the latter propitiate God by spiritual lamentation and contrition. So, you know, the the reason and the shape of one's abstinence is, is going to differ from person to person. And you know, one who lives an irreproachable life and is going to have a kind of sensitivity of soul is one going to want to hold on to abstinence because he knows that this is what makes him sensitive to these subtle movements that takes place, that take place within on a bodily level, natural level, or among one's thoughts. And but there's also going to be those who are, you know, besieged by, these temptations, and so are going to fast, you know, with a great rigor, but with this sense that they might have to do it all the way, you know, through their their life because of the the how deeply rooted these passions are within them, and uh, it might be more, uh, uh, it might have more of a within it of a sense of compunction too you know, how they take up their fasting might be filled with, you know, what we've talked about in the past, that spirit of contrition and compunction. So important little distinctions there for us, you know, both do it and do it, but for different reasons, but equally important for their own reasons. 15, the perfect The perfect find their time of gladness and consolation and freedom from all care in all things. The warrior ascetic delights in the heat of the battle, but the slave of the passions revels in the feast of feast and the festival of festivals. So the perfect is going to be one who wants to maintain that peace of Christ, that peace of the kingdom within stillness of mind and heart, and so is have is going to have incorporated these disciplines in such a way that they, again, they love them, and they become part of the fabric of, of their makeup and their thinking and their practice. The one who's a warrior, who's engaged fully in the battle, is going to see their uh, necessity and so delight in embracing them, knowing that they strengthen him in that battle. But the one who is the slave of the passions, this is the one who's going to be looking forward to the time when the the fast can be broken. It's not is not going to have a love, certainly for the 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 practice, the discipline, but just the opposite. Uh, Because to let off then is also to is a prelude to feeding other passions, even if that's not fully conscious. And in the spiritual battle, we have to be able not only to come to hate the particular sin, uh, but also the things that lead to it, to let go of our attachment to the things that lead to the passions. And that's a little bit more difficult. Because we have to be deeply self-aware there and have, again, this desire uh, for a life of holiness and to please God that we're willing to cut out of our lives anything that would potentially give rise to those passions in our life. So even if they seem benign in and of themselves, if we know that they create a vulnerability for us, we don't hesitate to let them go or to cut them out of our life. Again, that's not, we're really hesitant to do that. More often we hear the question, well, how far can I go? Or how, you know, what can I participate in? Or what kinds of movies can I watch? You know, and, you know, if it's a part of the story, is it so bad? You know, and whereas, you know, PG-13 movies are no longer PG-13. And pretty much anything that you watch is probably going to stir the passions for you in one way or another and not just on the level of sensuality, but I think like of aggression too. I mean, we don't talk very much about that, but the movies have become so violent uh, that we we can't be deluded into thinking that filling the mind and the imagination with, with, with such things is going to leave one unaffected. You know, if that's in our consciousness, you know, even if it doesn't affect us for years, uh, you know, in subtle ways, it it can really direct that aggression that is part of our human makeup, that insensitive faculty that we've talked about that is really meant to be directed towards our sin or temptation. It can distort that and lead us to direct it outwards. And so we become can become passive aggressive first with others, you know, and or, or then aggressive verbally. And then, when all restraints are lost, you know anything that inhibits or shapes or forms the mind and the heart. And I think we see this in our culture a lot today, where there is this kind of raw aggression that can be really f- frightening. You know that one can be in a bad mood and go up and club somebody over the head for no other reason than that. And uh, and so we don't want to take these things lightly. The heart of gluttonous dreams only, I'm sorry, the heart of gluttons dreams only of food and eatables, but the heart of those who weep dreams of judgment and castigation. And so, you know, the the person who really acknowledges the poverty of their sin and their tendency uh, towards sin is is going to... uh, you know, weep dreams of judgment and castigation. So to keep in mind one's own mortality, uh, that one has to give an account for one's life, you know, whatever it takes to restrain oneself uh, in one's actions or one's thoughts. And so, you know, fear of God, you know, is the beginning of wisdom. And so it might be what is needed. We might not say it's the highest motivation For ourselves, obviously, we would want to love God and respond in that love to leading a certain life. But sometimes to draw us out of these habits of mind and behavior, we have to have this kind of radical clarity with ourselves. Our life in this world is ever so brief and that we are in the end times, that God has revealed himself completely to us. And uh, I think I might have mentioned in the Evergatinos, Paul of Avdekimov talking about this ex- esch- eschatological maximalism, that we understand that we live in the end times, but it, that understanding leads us then to live in the moment and to live in the moment radically, that our spiritual life cannot be lived out in the past or ruminating about the past or thinking about our past sins, nor can it be lived out in the future, but only in the present moment, and is there that lies everything that's important for us, to love God, the opportunity to love God and to love others. It's in that moment that passes by, and we either embrace it or we don't, and sometimes having this kind of clarity that John speaks of here draws us to where we need to be in that regard. Sue and Mark, or oh, wait, wait one second here. Brad Smith had a uh, hand up first. If the warrior ascetic is distinct from the perfect ascetic, is Calamicus implicitly warning the warrior to be careful not to delight to the point of succumbing to pride in the heat of the battle when successful? I would say yes, because he often draws our attention to that and warns against it. And I think the perfect, uh, again, is. Uh, You know, there's one modern elder that says, leave sin alone. Uh, You know, our goal is not even to be caught up in the battle, that our focus is so intensely upon God that we aren't focused upon the temptations or anything that would lead us away from him. And so the perfect is going to be the one that allows those things to to, be you know, slide away from us through the use of prayer. They often, the fathers will say, if you turn your attention to a specific uh, temptation or thought, you've already lost the battle because you've turned your attention off of God onto that specific thing. And if you lose sight of God, you're going to lose that battle. Because you are engaged in a battle with someone who has far more experience than you and sees far more things than you do. And so don't get locked into this mental, psychological struggle with your own thoughts or feelings. Rather, allow your prayer to draw you to God, to simplify and your thoughts to move from multiplicity to simplicity onto God. That's where real freedom comes from, and a kind of stillness and silence, internal silence emerges. Hezekiah, the the fathers call it. This is what we want to become manifest within us in order that we might hear and listen to God more and more fully. And also, there to be able to comprehend Him and through the uh, gift of faith, that we're able to experience Him uh, through, through faith as He is. In himself, uh, Sue and Mark.
0: Um, yeah, um, I've always had a question um, as we were going through the, fir- uh, the fathers here <clears throat> about their insistence on fear. When I'm reading scripture, Psalms in the Old Testament, it talks about fear of God. And I'm looking at the context I'd always, um, it's not always a servile fear. A lot of times it's awe, reverence. <clears throat> deferential love is maybe another way that I would put that or that you love someone so much, you really don't want to hurt them and see them suffer. But sometimes I get this impression. So if, that's inc- if this impression is incorrect, I will gladly hear it. Um, that they really are talking about fear, fear, fear in a very negative way. And um, fear never leads to love. So I ha- I have a difficult time with that. It can lead to anger. Um, it can lead to a very poor poverty of mind and spirit, where you're just terrified of God, but you're never going to really love him. And so I find this concerning at times when I pick this up, and I'm just wondering if I'm picking a mishearing. And if I am mishearing, then I would like to be redirected. Thank you, Father. Um,
1: You know, I think it's good to struggle with this question. And it comes up endlessly. And because I think part of what we do is we project, I think, our own human experience onto God. And, uh, and the times that we feared others and the times that others have given us reason to fear them, uh, where I think our fear of God is rooted in our acknowledgement of the, the otherness of God, that he's creator, we are a creature, but also the, the, the magnitude of the gift that has been given to us, that we have a capacity in our fallenness, in our sin, to hold the grace of God cheap, That God uh, did what is unthinkable, that he emptied himself, took the form of a slave, a servant, becomes obedient unto death. He takes upon himself the darkness of our sin, the weight of it, the consequence of it, of every individual through time, the experience of the, the pain of that, and has entered into it fully. And not only this, but then the fruit of this self-emptying and self-donation is uh, completed in uh, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, the gift of the Holy Eucharist. So he nourishes himself upon, we nourish ourselves upon him, but he's made us also temples of the Holy Spirit. So the very spirit of God, the very spirit that searches the very depths of God now searches our depths and is within us. That we are temples of almighty God who holds in the palm of his hand all of creation has made it such that we are the temples in which he now dwells. And if we understand the the magnitude of that, the beauty of that, the nature of that gift, then the thought of losing it through... You know, a lack of zeal, sloth, negligence, you know, indifference uh, should fill our hearts and with uh, a kind of fear and and trembling that we could choose in our freedom uh, if love is only something that is, you know, uh, experienced in the free gift of oneself to another, but also the reception of that gift that it can be rejected or turned away from. That, that that should give a kind of weight to the decisions that we make, how we, again, we live in the moment, a, an urgency to our life. I've mentioned here before that Chrysostom talks about that how it's often fruitful at one point in our life or another to have this experience of fear and trembling about receiving the Holy Eucharist, not because the fear and trembling in and of itself is a, an end or good, but it high, highlights that we understand the magnitude of what God is doing for us and what he's given to, giving to us in that gift, that we're not walking up to receive or to take for ourselves something that is of, you know, no significance. Uh, you know, I grew up Presbyterian where there was no sense of the real presence and we, you know, received, you know, the soda cracker or whatever it was and a little shot of grape juice Uh, but you know embracing the sacramental worldview and understanding what God has done through the incarnation and through the Paschal mystery all of a sudden you know our understanding of reality is to change that we're not called to be good and what has come about is not simply the redemption of our sins but a raising of us up to be able to share in the fullness of the life of the most holy trinity deification and there's no way that in our sinfulness and our self-absorption and our egoism that we're not going to take that lightly and have to have something that wakes us up to that reality and you know often it's people who have had these near experiences of death that all of a sudden you know, their perception of God, of their life, you know, begins to change, you know, they 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 don't take things lightly any longer. And, you know, we are so used to being immersed in this world of distraction that pushes the reality of death, you know, out to the margins of the mind, rather than allowing it to be something that heightens our awareness of the, not only the significance of our life and its brevity, but also the nature of the gift that God has given to us. And so we, you know, you know, we, even in terms of how we treat those who have died or treat those who are sick now, you know, it's, they're not sick at home. They're often sick in isolation, in a hospital or, you know, hooked up to machines or in a nursing home. And when they die, you know, that they're they're not, the wake doesn't take place at home. It's in, you know, this very, you know, sanitary kind of environment, and they're dressed up and put makeup on them to make them look very much, you know, alive in order to soften the impact of that reality. Well, previous generations, you know, were confronted with that reality you know, throughout the course of their life, you know, that death was something that was very close to them, you know, because of disease or wars or whatever it might, might be. And, you know, we live in a time where, you know, we we push it out of our mind and don't want to face it. Look at, look at what COVID did. You know, it scared people out of their wits but not necessarily to the point of you know we we were still able to move through that without it being you know awakening us to our own mortality in the way that it could have and this is where i think the tr- church dropped the ball i think both in offering consolation and the strength of the sacraments to people when it was most needed but also of addressing the reality of what something like this could mean for us and the members of our, our family. 9-11, you know, did the same thing, but for a much shorter period of time, 24 hours. And then once the danger was passed for people, you know, because we, we live in this, you know, in this grand delusion of our culture that, you know, we're untouchable. And so after the threat seems to be over, people go back to normal. You know, everybody for 24 hours was running home to mom and dad, you know, and, but after that, you know, once it was clear that the, it was over, then the, the focus became on retribution, you know, how we were going to respond to it rather than the deeper spiritual significance of that. You know, what, what does evil or what does an act of aggression like that tell us about the reality of our life in this world and of sin and our participation in that reality. Again, that could have been a, a moment that the church would speak very deeply to the minds and the hearts of the faithful, not in a condemn, simply in a condemning way of what was done, but our our participation in that reality, you know, this radical solidarity that allows these things to emerge. You know, again, it's an illusion to think that we're somehow separated from those events in, in regards to our participation in them. And so, you know, I think our response to this, this notion of ear isn't an emotional one. I think it, it strikes against our sensibilities and sensitivities we, we don't like to, to think about this in a relationship to God uh, because it seems foreign uh, to love to us. But, you know, any parent knows, you know, to show love means at times to discipline their children. And, you know, if you provide no boundaries for your children, you're mm-hmm. not loving them. You know, psychological studies show that children become incredibly insecure when their parents let them run, you know, you know, roughshod over the house, give no direction, set no boundaries whatsoever. They become incredibly secure because there's nobody setting the boundaries of reality for them, and so it's like they're they're left in uh, this kind of existence, really not knowing how to judge. Things or how to manage their own emotions, free these free-range kids (laughs) that we see in our our culture today. And so, you know, to think of God's love of us, it's going, you know, He's going to allow us to see the consequence of that sin. And this is why we keep the crucifix within our churches as well. That in it we might see the depth of that love, but we would also see the weight and the consequence of our sin, which is death. And that life himself al- allowed himself to be swallowed up in it, in order that we might not be destroyed by it. And so if we push this notion out of our minds and our hearts, then we're also, uh, we're also preventing ourselves from perhaps experiencing something of the depth of that love or being drawn to a a deeper and greater place in our relationship with God to move to a different level in terms of what we value and what we're committed to. Oh, okay, then. It's 841, uh, so we've gone a little over time. I don't mind again taking time with especially stuff like this, uh, that touches you know our experience so deeply. So we'll stop there for the evening and pick up next, not next week. I'm sorry, next week is Holy Week, and uh, I'm learning a lot this, this year, so I have to keep my focus. And uh, so we'll pick up the week after Easter, okay? All right, bless you all, and uh, have a wonderful. Easter, and i'll be praying for you remember you all at the altar and ask you to pray for me as well in the father and the Son, and the holy spirit amen our father who art in heaven hallowed be thy name thy kingdom come thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. The Lord be with you. May Almighty God bless you, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Go in peace.
0: Thanks.